Welcome to the Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, I kick off with an interview with Duncan Fulton, Chief Corporate Officer for Restaurant Brands, Inc., better known as Tim Hortons, Burger King, and Popeyes. Recorded live in a busy media room at the Restaurant Canada trade show in early March, Duncan takes us through the strategy, culture, driving 27,000 restaurants in 110 countries with a new restaurant opening every seven hours and how to figure out the right pace of change in any organization. Next, Carl Boutet, Chief Strategist for Studio RX, recorded from his office in Montreal. We catch up after missing each other in January at the NRF Big Show and talk about his visit to Asia and China earlier in the year, observations from his tour, and lessons learned that we can apply to our situation today dealing with COVID-19 and how the Chinese are pulling themselves out of the crisis. But first, let's jump right into my conversation with Duncan from RBI. All right, Duncan, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, we met in one of your past lives when I was a Retail Council of Canada and you were at uh, Canadian Tire and Sport Chick, so it's great to see you again. It was good fun. Always looking for the low-profile jobs that, uh, <laughs> that don't offer many challenges. You've got, you've got a, real, uh, a real thing on your hands with RBI. For the folks at home that are listening, unpack for us a little bit about your personal professional journey and a little bit about RBI, because I'm not sure people understand the, some of the great parts that it is. Sure. So my quick background um, that ended me at RBI, I spent the first nine years of my career working in politics, worked for Premier Frank McKenna in New Brunswick. Um, actually worked for Frank so much, I ended up dropping out of university <laughs> to uh, to spend all of my time working for Frank because I was learning so much at such a young age. Um, then I worked in Ontario, then I worked in Ottawa in politics, um, worked for the Prime Minister for several years. Then after nine years in government, realized I really didn't understand the private sector. So I went to agency for six years. And an agency... It exposed me to dozens of companies in a number of different industries. Uh, and then by 2009, got headhunted to go join Canadian Tire, uh, joined them, uh, became part of the acquisition team uh, there when we did the acquisition of uh, the Frizzani Group, which became FGL Sports, which right. is SportCheck. Um, at that point, I became the chief marketing officer uh, for FGL and also for the Marks brands. I'd never done the marketing side before, so uh, that was uh, that was amazing. Um, it's such a great team of professionals on at Canadian Tire and at FGL. Oh, amazing! Place, amazing! Right? Just, just the uh, first class marketing. And uh, then became president of FGL. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I met the folks at Restaurant Brands. Mm. So RBI is um, 27,000 restaurants in 110 countries, Mm. Uh, Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Hortons. Uh, We are currently opening a new restaurant every seven hours somewhere on the planet. Every seven hours, seven days a week? Seven days a week, every seven hours, we're opening a new restaurant. Wow. Uh, Last year, we opened... I'm going to say net, because, you know, you're always closing a few, so let's be honest about it. Sure. Net, uh, we opened about 1,400 restaurants last year. Yeah. On our current traje- trajectory, which we'd like to speed up, mm. we will be at 40,000 restaurants within 8 to 10 years, and that will put us as one of the couple biggest restaurant companies on the planet. How do you, uh, at that pace, keep uh, and establish a culture? You know, that's a tremendous pace, one every seven hours. How do you how do you put in place a culture uh, that, that keeps that pace up and keeps the quality and, and all the things that... I've got to tell you, one of the big reasons that I joined RBI uh, is the culture um, blows me away. Hmm. So RBI owns these brands that have 30, 40, 50 years of heritage. RBI is a startup. It didn't exist before mm. December 2014. Right. So folks that own Burger King bought Tim's uh, and then IPO'd a new company called RBI. So RBI is five years old. And uh, I, as we look at it today, there was almost an RBI 1.0, mm. which is kind of called 2015 to 2018, even, yeah, 2018, early 2019. We're now into RBI 2.0. Mm. 
Um, we had an amazing CEO guide the company kind of through the Burger King years and into the Tim's years. A new CEO who's been with uh, Burger King for 20 plus years as an operator named Jose Sill became our CEO in January of 19. Everything about our culture is about an ownership mindset. We only have 1,250 people globally, 1,250 people supporting 27,000 restaurants. And that means culturally, we're not a bank. We don't have 100,000 people. We're not kind of stuck with the culture we have. We can spin the culture on a dime if we want to. And on top of that, we really ascribe to an ownership mentality where you come in, we keep our teams tight, so you're given a ton of accountability, you're given extremely clear outcomes. The people that deliver the outcomes and do it in the right way um, are rewarded with equity in the company. And we have a number of other programs that make it easy for you to buy into the company. So where a lot of companies say, we want you to act like an owner, but they don't treat you like an owner. Um, if you look at the top 10% of our company, let's call it those top 125 people, the top 10% of our company has an average age of about 39. Well, young, um, young, right? And that group would all have each kind of seven figures of equity, if not more, mm. in the company. So there's material ownership in the company. So what does that mean? Mm. That means that when you're sitting around choosing priorities, you only focus on the things that matter. It doesn't matter who got the parking spot. It doesn't matter who was on the two line versus the CC line on the email. These are things, it doesn't matter um, who gets the office because we don't have offices. We all work at the same tables side by side. Companies that can't provide an ownership culture suddenly all those other things matter because they're status symbols. In our company, all that matters is doing a great job, delivering on outcomes, being a hardworking, good person. Uh, and we have a lot of true owners in the company that, that really focus on what matters to drive the business. And what's your role in all this? You're chief corporate officer. What does that, what does that mean on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis? Obviously, strategy and growth strategy. Yeah, look, it's a vague enough title that lets me play in a lot of, in a lot of different things. So listen, the, uh, the, the company had never, again, as part of a startup, like most startups, in the early days, you focus on driving business, um, getting clients, building a sustainable business model. Uh, so the company never spent any time telling its own story, um, making sure that all the different audiences that care about you, governments, investors, suppliers, franchisees, um, there wasn't a ton of attention in the early days on telling our story to all those audiences. The focus was just put your head down, do a good job, the numbers will speak for themselves, all is good. But like with any company as it matures, we come to the conclusion um, it's easier to attract top talent, it's easier to build meaningful, long-standing relationships with the people that matter most if they understand what you're up to and they understand how you're thinking. So we've spent a lot of time um, explaining that to folks, including doing our first investor day last year. Um, part of my attraction for joining the company was to play with all three brands globally. I'm also spending a large majority of my time at Tim's right now and spending a lot of time on the road with franchisees, uh, digging deep into a lot of the operational metrics uh, of how we serve franchisees. Um, and uh, attracting some great talent to join Tim Hortons. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, Tim Hortons is, is uh, such a great brand in this country, and it's been in the news. And, you know, recently talked about uh, need to do a little bit better than they did in the past. What are you hearing from the franchisees, and what are the plans for the for the Tim Hortons brand that, that get you excited about the, the potential? Yeah, look, we've really spent um, some considerable effort in the last 18 months uh, to build some very strong relationships with our franchisees. Again, it's a very grassroots distributed model sure. where we have 1,500 small business owners that own 4,000 restaurants across the country. Um, so it's, it's always complex to manage um, the information that gets to 1,500 individuals on a daily basis. So I uh, spent a lot of time building the routines so they can get that feedback uh, as, to what, as to what we're up to. 
uh, they gave us the feedback that for a year or two there, uh, we added too much complexity to the business. You know, we, we typically would do 25 limited time offers in a year, mm. like what you would expect. You got a pumpkin spice in the fall, you got a candy cane at Christmas, you a smile stuff. cookie in the spring. Um, then we went from 25 to 35. Two years ago, we did 40. Last year, we did 60 limited time offers. Um, and we added a lot of complexity to the restaurants. And we caused some chaos in the system. Even just take it down to a part-time employee comes in for your shift, and there's six new things on the menu that you had to figure out in the five minutes before your shift starts. There's a long line of cars waiting to get served, so you, know, you yeah. want to have great customer service. And, and you know, I think... I think Canadians looked at Tim's and said, you guys are trying some stuff that's kind of on the edges that you're not known for. Franchisees said that. And look, there's always going to be opportunities to expand and grow more categories. But we said, listen, we need to be the absolute undisputed best at breakfast, at baked goods, at coffee. Uh, and we have a few things we can do to be better. So take coffee. Um, we are among the last to move to new technology brewing. We're still been using glass pots. Um, we've never changed our blend of beans since 1964. You know, like one out of every two people I meet, they go, why did you let your competitor take your beans? Never happened, okay? Which is <laughs> fake news. Um, but we've had the same great blend of beans. You know, others uh, sped up their efforts on packaging, on marketing, on advertising, on water filtration, on brewing technology. Um, and we were late versus some of our competitors on that. So that's why you're seeing us do a lot of that very quickly now. Um, we have to provide the best cup of coffee, the best donut, the best breakfast in the country, hands down. And we are doing that with a big focus this year. And then we can continue to expand from the core. I see that, you know, food service and restaurants and retail share a lot in common. And, and you know, tremendous disruption in the space from home delivery perspective and from finding the right people and talent. How do you look at those elements of the business? I, you know, in, recently in the news, Panera was in the news talking about a, an all-you-can-drink coffee program. It clearly feels like that's going to drive their, their lunch or breakfast business. So there's a lot of disruption in, in your category. How do you, how do you, what's your lens at what you look at that disruption? Yeah, so look, we, we can talk about disruption in terms of delivery or even disruption in terms of technology. Um, you know, we were among the last to have a meaningful loyalty program. And a lot of people say, well, why do you even need it? Everyone comes to you every day anyway. Uh, because it's kind of table stakes in the industry and the opportunity to do a trade with the guest that says, listen, if you want to give me your name and email and let me show you some new offers that may get you to buy some different things at different times, in exchange, I'll give you some great value for money and some free stuff. Uh, and so far, more than seven and a half million people hmm. have signed up for that in a matter of like a year. In Canada? In Canada. Right. Um, 18 million roughly we, adult population. You're right. So, so we have population. competitors that took years to get to half that grade. Yeah. Uh, and in less than a year, we had seven and a half million people sign up for the loyalty program. Hmm. Uh, then we said, okay, let's get, let's make this digital. Let's get, let's get it on the app. Yeah. Um, which we've just launched. So now we say, look, every time you visit us, you're going to get 10 points. And now you can bank those points and decide what you want to spend them on. Mm -hmm. So five visits gets you a free donut. Seven visits gets you a free coffee. 14 visits gets you a free ice cap. In fact, it opens up the entire menu. Um, that's what folks expect from us. And in return, we're going to say, look, we're going to bring out some new products. And based on, based on what you tend to buy every week, we're not going to spam you. We're not going to send you stuff you don't care about. But if you're an avid tea drinker and we're launching a new tea, I want to let you know. Right. If you've never bought a tea before and you don't care about tea, I'm not going to bug you with that. But we have, an, we have an amazing new lunch sandwich you should know about. So the loyalty program offers a ton of incrementality for us. Um, drive through we are digitizing our menu boards and all of our drive throughs this year. Again, that gives not only um, 
the opportunity to segment our marketing message by region, including weather-based messages. Sure. So if it's the middle of the summertime, yeah. it's been cold and freezing and raining for two <laughs> weeks, maybe we're not advertising our iced coffee. Maybe we're advertising a tea or, or a coffee or a hot chocolate, which some people want. And that can be adjusted region by region. Also, as we kind of roll forward a year or two, if you come to us four or five times a week and always order the same thing, toasted uh, raisin cinnamon bagel with cream cheese and a large coffee with two cream, my order, um, <laughs> then we'll be able to make it so you can turn on kind of automatic ordering on your phone Then you use, whether it's NFC or some other technology. Sure. As soon as you pull in and you've opted into this, uh, the digital menu board says regular order, got it, and you just pull straight through, and it speeds up our it speeds up your time and everybody wins and our lanes. So uh, we're embracing technology at, at every part of the business. Yeah. So, so product innovation, technology innovation, innovation in the way you hire people, you hire must hire thousands of people on a daily, almost a daily basis. Yeah. What advice would you have for for people in your your space or, or any executive about dealing with that pace of change because it's, it's not you know both scope and scale wise the pace of change is just accelerating how do you how do you deal with that with that change you know it's a let's say um there's always a friction in change mm -hmm. and you have to figure out how much friction the organization can handle mm -hmm. before you crack it mm -hmm. uh i think most senior executives Uh, would go as fast as they possibly could 100% of the time. Most organizations have a hard time changing at that, at that pace. So it's your job to figure out, uh, number one, I've never seen an individual be able to drive change. You have to share your, your change vision, your leadership vision with a lot of people in the organization. So if the organization starts acting in the way you want them to, then the organization will drive the change. You can't just stand up and give speeches and expect stuff to happen. Like you have to actually change um, all the way through layers. Um, people have to be able to embrace the change and also in a constructive way push back against it. Like a healthy culture has someone say, look, I know you want to go fast, I know you want to do this thing. I've been here for a long time. Here are some pitfalls you should consider. And good leadership teams should stop and listen to those pushbacks. That's what that's what ownership culture. So you has. build mechanisms within the organization to get that kind of feedback from, you know, the pace is a hundred percent. Gold. What's the Goldilocks pace, right? And once you allow for that feedback and you take the feedback, you also need a culture of getting stuff done. Yeah. And if there's people in the organization that are blocking change, they need to be given the opportunity to get on board, or they need to go. I mean, people have to be put into roles to drive and deliver the change. Um, so I can't answer it particularly for any particular company or industry. You have to be, um, you have to kind of drive relentless uh, discomfort <laughs> to, to get things done. Right. Um, and sometimes uh, instead of kind of gearing up, you might need to coast for, uh, for a few weeks to let things settle in and then pop it back into gear and go again. So, um, last question: What's uh, what's next for RBI? What's uh, what's the future? You've talked about the number of restaurants and pace and the adoption technology and better service. What's, what's what's on the roadmap for the next couple of years? So, Burger King has continued to grow aggressively globally all around the world. The so last year, um, in fact, the last two years, Burger King has done like net a thousand restaurant growth <laughs> each year. <laughs> Um, that was like a dream back in back in 2011, 2012, mm. to ever be able to, to hit a thousand new restaurants a year. Mm. So there are so many markets uh, where we're still the number two brand with a huge opportunity to grow. For Popeyes, um, number one, it's harnessing harnessing this moment in time when everyone in the U.S. Uh, has fallen in love with the chicken sandwich. You definitely have momentum, right? You have um, momentum in that way. Right, so then you say, okay, great, I need to take that momentum, I need to rapidly expand in the U.S., I need to upgrade the image of the restaurants, but also globally. Um, so look, now that we know that we have, look, we've always had amazing chicken at Popeye, and I would have added the sandwich in as part of the arsenal. Um, our top competitor has built 
more than 11,000 restaurants in Asia. Uh, we have like 200. So there's a market in Asia that loves chicken. And we think we have better chicken than anybody. And we only have 200 restaurants open. So find partners and open um, as aggressively as we possibly can. And for Tim's, it's let's get the Canadian business, which is the large majority of the business, let's get our basics buttoned down. Let's do that phenomenally well. Uh, and then let's hit the gas and continue to kind of grow and make Canadians proud of us. And it's probably the same opportunity in Asia. I remember uh, looking at one of the restaurants that was open in Shanghai, right? So some expansion, big coffee drinking and tea drinking in, in oh, Asia. I totally agree. And look, and we're in the process of building out 1,500 restaurants in Asia, and, mm. and we're, in, uh, we're in seven or eight or more different countries right now. Uh, and those are all important continued expansions. At the end of the day, everyone in the world says, how's home market doing? Right. Uh, we need to make home market amazing. Hmm. Very good. Well, Duncan, thanks for taking some of your time and uh, chatting with The Voice of Retail. It's great to see you again. Good and to see and, you uh, again. Great chat. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Carl, welcome back to The Voice of Retail podcast. It's been uh, way too long since we've seen each other. It's great to chat. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again sometime soon, but uh, again, really great to chat. Um, for the benefit of those listeners who may have not heard our earlier conversations and know uh, not as much about you as I do, could you give us a little bit about uh, yourself and, and your background? Well, my name is Carl Boutet. I'm uh, founder and chief strategist of Studio RX, which is a, a boutique uh, retail strategy advisory firm. That uh, base, what basically got me to this is uh, having spent the better part of a decade uh, doing store in store technology, spe- specific uh, retailing for Costco uh, wholesale, and then uh, having worked uh, almost over six, well over six years with a, a large retail co-op that had uh, just about 800 stores uh, within it, and then. Um, last since then, spending the last uh, five plus years working with uh, technology companies, retailers, and basically uh, the whole ecosystem uh, that comes into contact with our, our global uh, retail village. I'm based in Montreal. I've been here, uh, I guess, uh, you know, since since day one. But I travel extensively, or I was traveling extensively, right. like like many of us, uh, getting uh, you know getting to all the getting to the four corners, but. Uh, but now Montreal, spending a lot more time in Montreal, obviously. Well, that's a great segue into my next question. Uh, I was with uh, Steve Dennis in uh, New York at the big, uh, the big show, the NRF Big Show in January, and we were both kind of missing you and, and uh, commenting that it was a strange show not to have you there. And I believe, though, speaking of traveling, you were in, uh, you were in China uh, in January, and I, I kind of pre-COVID China, I guess. Tell us about that. What brought you there, and, and what were your observations about China and the retail scene as a, as a person right on the ground in um, in China? Right. So it was actually not just China. I was uh, the, the primary purpose of that trip was actually I was chairing, <clears throat> pardon me, chairing the uh, Southeast Asian Retail Summit or the ASEAN uh, Retail Summit, as they call it, uh, that was based in Bangkok. And so the primary purpose of the trip was, was, was that, but I was fortunate enough to have travel plans that brought me through Shanghai, uh, and, uh, and they have or had a travel visa option that would allow me to spend, uh, uh nearly a week in Shanghai, um, the, you know, without having to go through too much rigmarole of, 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 uh, getting an actual formal, uh, business visa. So I benefited from that, uh, option and spent, uh, Spent, uh, you know, like that was nearly five days, uh, in China, in Shanghai, I should say specifically. Cause, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, I, uh, pre, pre COVID, uh, definitely in terms of our knowledge in the, <laughs> when I was in Shanghai, there was zero, um, concern around it or there was, didn't seem to be any uh, level of, of alertness. Uh, we just basically been told to avoid Wuhan if we could. Uh, even that wasn't so formal. It was more, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, recommendation but uh yeah i mean it was crazy to think you know look back now and, and think of myself flying out of uh, uh the airport in shanghai on january 16th mm. sort of oblivious mm. to all that was coming but having really immersed myself for that there was you know that period in the in the shanghai retail ecosystem which doesn't necessarily represent all of china but is sort of the bleeding edge just like saying new york city represents the u.s retail mm. scene 
but mm. even even more so because Shanghai is, is just, I mean, what Shanghai was really at that specific period preparing for much more than COVID was, was their, you know, their, their, their New Year's, their Lunar New Year, which is a huge event as we all know there. So retail was, you know, fully, you know, fully operating on, on, on getting everybody ramped up for Lunar New Year. And it was, uh, listen, astounding to see uh, how that manifested itself and the consumption and, and just thinking about, I mean, you know, I've been to the, uh, to the uh, house of innovation in, in New York, Nike's house of innovation. And to think that they can mm-hmm. actually, you know, do something bigger and more impressive than that is hard to, you know, it's hard to fathom while they done it in Shanghai. So that just kind of gives you a benchmark and then think of, uh, you know, base, then the next, Level down is 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 probably the best other Nike store you've ever thought of, and then they have those on pretty much every corner of uh, of Nanjing Road. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's just staggering. It's you know, and the volume and all, all the factors we know of uh, were there, the consumption, everything to to make that a reality. So that was you know that was sort of my pre-COVID experience in Shanghai, but my you know my during COVID, which we could I think still characterize and we'll, we'll talk more about the bounce back later but um mm-hmm. is is just the fact that i was uh, really in contact with a ton of uh, business people um you know in shanghai they really exposed me and, and helped me create relationships with people like the president of the canadian chamber of commerce in shanghai who i'm on pretty much still in daily contact with now uh, different business leaders from from one of the uh, oldest um, marketing ag- uh, you know retail marketing agencies there uh, and, and to the one of the largest architecture firms as well and, and you know store design firms so so I just this great sort of cross section of business people that that I've been able to stay close with and understand how they they've been dealing or made their way through this or in, in the process of uh, getting back, trying to get back on track. You know, I was speaking with uh, Frank Lavin for the podcast and, um, you know, we talked about how, uh, you know, the experience, uh, COVID experience, retail experience in, in China is basically a little bit like a crystal ball for what we might be able to expect around the rest of the world, uh, around the rest of the world. Um, so what what were their, you know, how did they get through it? What were their observations yeah. You know, how did, and, 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 you know, it's talking to these folks on a day to day basis. And I guess, you know, there's just starting, I, even, I'm not sure it's rebooting, but they're just starting to come out of it, uh, you know, three, four months later as, as we might as well. So it's, it's such valuable learning. What are, what are you hearing? What are they, yeah. so, what are their I mean, experiences? I, I, and, I think mm-hmm. we need to be careful with the crystal ball analogy because I think the, the realities, the ecosystems, the way they were, their economy is built. Uh, it differs quite a bit from ours. So we need to be still, um, a bit, uh, uh, careful as to trying to correlate how they're doing to how we will be doing. Uh, that said, I think it can inspire us a lot though. I think there's some actions that they've taken that should, uh, and we're already seeing some, some examples of that, you know, sort of really, uh, inspire, I guess, how we can, we can bounce back from that or at least mitigate some of it. So let me start by saying some of the things I think will be more difficult for us short term to replicate is what's allowed them to get back on track a little more quickly is, is just a, the discipline they had around lockdown. I mean, they truly went into a complete I mean, an utter lockdown, which is incredible for us to even think of when you see the, when I look back at the masses of people circulating around that, that went from, you know, went straight, straight down to zero overnight, basically. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, so that's one's hard to replicate. And then secondly is the tracking that they have in place around, uh, being able to show, you know, be able to demonstrate where, where they're at in, in their health. Uh, so, the big thing right now that they've had is uh, is these QR codes that they can they they have to by basically by law go around with showing if they've uh, if they're contaminated if they've been in contact with somebody that's contaminated that's caught the you know, um, and 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 all so it's it's basically like a, a green yellow red uh, thing where mm-hmm. you basically if you don't have a, if you don't have a, a, a green um, if you don't have a green QR uh, code with you showing that you're all clear, you're you're not allowed to get around. 
So you you basically huh. are in quarantine. Wow. If you're a yellow, right. you basically got to get checked, and it's in a red is confirmed case. So, uh, right. so these are right. all things that I know there was a mm-hmm. lot of people looking into and seeing how we could mm-hmm. develop something similar without too much infringement on our privacy, which is sort of what I'm getting at in terms of the big difference. Yeah. Uh, we all that we all are you know know about and hear hear constantly about, but there are uh, I know a lot of academics right now that are trying to develop. Um, systems that decentralized sort of systems that could allow us to track this without necessarily exposing people's privacy. So there, that's you know, that's a whole other subject that's well beyond retail, but it's it does accelerate and is is part of the conditions of how they've they're getting back on track. And you know what I'm hearing is like you know office work is back to depending on who you listen to, but let's average it out on seventy five percent in some cases, ninety ninety five percent. Hey, manufacturing is back as well in, in, the, in that range. Uh, so so the, the interesting studies yesterday coming out from Fung Business Intelligence that tracks the purchase managers index there for China, showing, you know, showing a really inspiring bounce back where they were. It was catastrophic in February and March is, is, is up substantially. So, uh, so that would be something that, that could inspire us. But knowing that the factors that are leading to that are a bit different. Um, really, you know, this is sort of a, a, a one of the biggest cases right now for, uh, for especially in the um, uh, in the data science world, trying to find ways mm-hmm. to tackle both the privacy and the health at the same time, and finding you know new solutions that we're more we would be more comfortable with. So let's let's hope those uh, come along quickly. Kind of square that circle of something that that both helps us all stay safe but keeps our privacy. Maybe a hashed out kind of ID or something. I, yeah. Well, so yeah, interesting, so the, the yeah. distributed ledger technology is, is mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. is, is the one that it's quickly going to and, and using uh, you know different uh, pieces of uh, of machine learning and you know throw all the buzzwords in. But uh, but there is actual science behind that. MIT is actually instigating a really fascinating project around that, and we have some professors here in Montreal that are. Um, actively <clears throat> involved as well, but the uh, yeah. So I mean, that's that's sort of the baseline of of how they've managed to get back on track in places like uh, Singapore and, and South Korea. All, always knowing that you know there there also is concerns around a second wave and all this other stuff that the media right. keeps reminding of us of. But but they have this as a baseline, and we'll see. I mean, Europe. You know, we're not the only ones facing this uh, health and privacy. Paradox. I mean, the European Union is working hard on this as well, uh, and, and and all different parts of the world are really trying to lead the way here. So maybe uh, a nice place for technology to play a very positive role in uh, in how we can get back to business. Well, speaking of getting back to business, uh, based on your conversations with people in in Shanghai, and just on your your great experience, what's what would advice would you have for for retails listening about how to? Um, how and what to do today i guess there's there's a couple of different broad classifications of retails today those who are deemed essential and operating those who are not and trying to muddle through or amplify their e-commerce like what 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 advice now and i guess it's almost what advice do you have today and then how do you how do you advise getting ready for um what what is the 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 next day the coming out of of all this and in the weeks and months ahead how do you how do you how are you thinking about that and and what advice yeah well i mean i think the first the first thing is is business as usual as we know is over i mean that's that's been you know that keeps on coming back and it's very it's very scary for some but it's also a huge opportunity for many uh i think it's it speaks to um, you know, how we prepare and how we, we think about resilience now and, and, and sustainability beyond just, uh, you know, the environmental and, and thinking about economic mm-hmm. and social factors as well. But right now, let's say, you know, getting a little more practical and what can I do today to think about, you know, let's, let's, let's focus on the non-essential because I think they're the ones that need the most, uh, sort of, mm-hmm. uh, support in these circumstances because the, the essential, as we all know, that the challenge is really logistical right now, and, and that's operations, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. operations, supply chain, all that good stuff, which I'm involved with as well on the other side. But I, I think that conversation is is uh, is already well on its way. We and we can see the actors playing there already, especially uh, mm. you know to, in the Canadian ecosystem. The yeah. the the ones that I think who are struggling more to sort of reframe this as an opportunity are the non-essentials, and and we're almost scared to use the word experience right now because that was sort of our Mm. Yeah, that was our thing for you know the last the last uh, decade. You know, it was all about the experience, yeah. and now we're like now we're like screw experience. I mean, we need to get 
product out, right? I mean, like we need to, we need, we need cash in bank. So I don't, unless you can yeah. tell me directly how I tie experience the cash in bank, I don't want to hear about it. But mm. um, going back to sort of the influences of, that we've seen in Asia, I mean, we've seen sort of the, some of the, um, the ways that they, they pivoted very quickly to uh, more virtual but still high experience and uh, uh, technologies, and and the one that keeps coming up, and and there was another great uh, report this morning around, you know, the live streaming piece that that's up that went up seven hundred percent in China over, you know, which which was already a high, pretty high adoption to begin with. So what mm-hmm. is it going to take for us, you know, here to start? looking at this as beyond a shopping channel and really, you know, seeing for who, who are going to be the retailers that are going to champion this as a way of engaging with their customers and finding you guys. Cause I, Michael, I mean, you and I, we, we, you know, we both, we both know that it, it, it's going to, people are going to get, you know, get tired of shopping just for groceries online. I mean, they're going to eventually want to be a little more inspired and, and yes, they're going to cut down, you know, they're really going to cut down on their, their, uh, their consumption around, uh, you know, non, non-essentials, but, uh, you know, the discretionary piece is really what's going to get hammered. still happen, right? Anniversaries still happen. And I'm convinced. You know, hey, people- I'm, tired of, I'm tired of seeing you in the same shirt, for God's sake. Would you go buy a new shirt. <laughs> We've been stuck here together. My wife and I were joking about that. As well. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah, know. Even our, our, our God head of, our, you buy a new shirt. Our head of public health here in Quebec has become a bit of a superstar who's always got some pretty flamboyant dressing on. I said the same mm-hmm. things. I still need to find, I still need to get my, get my, you know, get my new, my, my funky ties and my my the shirts that i like you know to make them so they look stand out but no i think more than that i think we're just i think we're going to realize that um shopping is 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 in some ways is therapeutic for for some categories and specific to certain people in, in different ways and what be, might be therapeutic to me might not be therapeutic to you but i mean that's that's all that's all good because it, it creates opportunities for all the categories to um to do and create and drive content that's going to stay, that's going to engage with me when I, when I'm, you know, I want to sort of get out of my funk and yeah, I do want to shop for a, a, mm-hmm. a, col- a colorful new piece of clothing or a, a fragrance or a, you know, or a, a piece of furniture that's going to brighten up. It's so all these things that I'm going to be that I, a, I have a lot more time to look for and <laughs> probably than I did in the past. Uh, the con- concern being around, sure, I'm going to be very careful how I spend my money and, and, and knowing that not everybody's in different situations regarding that. And we're going to be very sensitive to that, but it's still, it's going to create winners. I mean, it's going to create people out there and we're seeing it. And I'm sorry to sort of always rehash some of the same examples, but you know, when you're seeing, uh, you're seeing sporting wear companies opening up, uh, free platforms for exercise, you know, saying, you know, we're, our, our premium service is now free. Um, you know, cosmetic companies doing all sorts of really interesting things as well, uh, trying to leverage these channels. And, and, and the one channel, like I said, I started off by saying, I think live streaming is something that if people haven't looked into it is, is, is for me, uh, you know, a, a, a low hanging fruit because it doesn't require that much, uh, t- you know, tech savvy. It just requires somebody that's comfortable to speak about a product that they're passionate about, which I, I would certainly hope that any retailer out there, uh, fit, you know, that it's worth, uh, you know, worthy of, of continuing in this environment is, is, is passionate about, about what they, what they sell and how they sell it. It's, it's almost like, you know, to borrow a phrase from, from China, a great leap forward potentially in, in things like that. Um, you know, the live streaming and, and it's, uh, such a fascinating time because the, the technology exists. It's just adoption, right? What what kind of shock changes consumer behavior? Well, this is about as big a shock yeah. as I and, think and, our and, generation And, really and the, nice, the nice thing right now is the community is rallying together, the technology community trying to make this. I mean, there be, they recognize the opportunity, you know, to, uh, you know, as the old saying, don't waste a good crisis. I mean, they're recognizing the opportunity to maybe change behaviors and, and are probably in getting attention. And there's a lot of really good Canadian technology providers in this space that are, that are offering, you know, free service that would have been unheard of three months ago, you know, saying, right, okay, listen, right. we'll, let, we'll let you take this for a spin, uh, you know, at no charges so you can fill it out, you know, which they wouldn't have again, even fathomed a couple of months ago. It's not, uh, yep. it's opportunistic, yep. but at the same time, I think it's, it's generous. And there's plenty of examples of technologies like that. Um, 
maybe another solution too that just so quickly to to think about because I'm seeing I'm seeing retailers and, and brands reaching out and trying to understand more around um, how they can engage the Chinese shopper. If the Chinese shopper is going to be back online more, more mm-hmm. quickly than, than nor- the North American shopper, how do I, maybe it's time I look into opening that Tmall store, you know, that I've been yep. hearing so much yeah, about yeah, yeah. as an example. Mm-hmm. So to offset some of those revenues and the logistics are, are, you know, probably more straightforward going that way right now than the other way around. So, and, mm-hmm. and Michael, I mean, if they're not doing it now, when are they going to do it? You know, right. these retailers, right. if you're not taking this opportunity now to, to at least explore these a little more seriously and have the conversations and reach out to the partners and find out how just how difficult would it be for me to sell my clothing line in, in mm-hmm. a T-Mall. I mean, I saw this week the, the Hermitage opened its, its T-Mall store, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know so mm-hmm. you're starting to see things like that. You know, we saw and, and uh, I did an interview with the pre- that president, the president of the Chamber of Commerce, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. He shared a ton of great examples on, on that interview about different ways that businesses had been adapting, starting with the Chinese ones, going outside of China, trying to figure it out. Now it's maybe an opportunity for us to, to do uh, to do the opposite. If not now, when? I guess if I'd summarize all that, it's it's such um, such great observations. And, and Carl, uh, thanks for bringing such great uh, background observations. Always a treat to speak with you, uh, no matter the circumstances, but uh, particularly today with your unique uh, intersection of technology and retail and, and having been there and, and such a great... Uh, observer and and uh, uh, resource for retailers how if uh, retailers who are listening want to get in touch with you uh, chat perhaps a bit more about this or, or learn more about you how do they uh, get in touch with i'm you? pretty easy to find uh, michael as as are you so i think they may probably using the same the same uh, the same tools you know my carl with his c boute b as in bravo o-u-t-e-t you can pretty much find me on all the platforms, uh, Google me or whatever, LinkedIn, obviously. So, uh, I'm, 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 I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think people that want to find me pretty much, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty easy to, 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 to reach out to. Carl, once again, thanks so much for, for making time to chat with uh, the voice of retail today. Look forward to catching up as we come back to you and get you back on the podcast in the, in the next, in the months to come and, and as we continue to assess. So once again, thanks for joining me and, and, uh, have a safe, safe uh, weekend and weekend for you and your family. Likewise, Michael. Thank you so much. Well, thanks to Duncan and Carl for being my guests on this episode. Speaking of doing business in China, I'm thrilled to announce that in partnership with some of the top thought leaders in the space, I've launched a new podcast, Global E-Commerce Tech Talks. Be sure and check out our trailer episode, now available on all the major platforms to learn more. Now, let's take a look at the top retail stories with or retail this week for the week of April 6th, 2020. Um, of course, COVID stories in retail uh, dominate for all the uh, the good and bad reasons that we know. Great story here uh, from Jake from the uh, Financial Post. Jake, uh, spot on on taking a look at all hands on deck. Grocery store executives get a taste of the hard life on the coronavirus front line. So, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, Anthony Longo, there's folks, uh, and Angie Kim from, uh, from Loblaw, uh, just working in the stores. The call went out to the head office that uh, the help was needed in the stores. You get a first-hand view. Um, you know, I've, I've been in a couple of uh, re- recently, a couple is recent as today, a couple of grocery stores uh, today doing some shopping. And, and really, uh, congratulations to everyone on the front lines. Uh, they're doing a fantastic job. Uh, not an easy uh, thing to be doing uh, and working in, but they're doing a great job managing the people in there. Um, I was in my my local Longos that had uh, one way directions on the floors. Not everybody's had figured that out quite yet. Um, kind of like you look up and you see someone coming at you at the highway the wrong way. Um, but you know, people will consumers will figure this out anyway. That's uh, that's from Jake uh, from the Financial Post. Um, retailers can hand a step up to help uh, to help, and that's from uh, Retail Insider. Uh, kind of an overall good overall view here. In fact, there's an interview with uh, a bunch of people, Trent Tam from uh, Chief Marketing Officer for Harry Rosen, uh, who I know well and, and had the pleasure of hosting uh, Trent on uh, on the podcast, actually, from uh, panels and from one-to-ones in marketing. So uh, they're doing some great work. I'm Harry Rosen converting some of the shirt manufacturing into uh, mask manufacturing. Uh, great news for our Ontario retail cannabis. So we had a few, another bump in the road 
uh, last week when cannabis was declared non-essential, uh, and that uh, closed its doors. But you know, in and all of that, we were pretty convinced uh, that you could do curbside. Uh, you know, there's some uh, background legislation that didn't allow you to cross the product cross the threshold. But you know, kudos to uh, to the industry, kudos to a retail council who put their weight behind it uh, to open that up and allow curbside delivery and home delivery uh, with. Um, with the associates delivering, not by third party, but delivering directly, just like I got my steam whistle beer in here in Toronto delivered to my doorstep, uh, much to the envy of my neighbors this week. So listen, you know, whatever you think of uh, the retail cannabis industry, I love it. I think it it is a fantastic uh, industry with uh, great retailers, uh, really top tier retailers uh, operating in that space. Um, You know, it must be said that when you close those doors, the black market slips right in immediately there was already stores opening there's no black market for uh, you know printer ink or uh, desks tops or other tables but uh, you know disallowing curbside uh, was was certainly going to be catastrophic and uh, kudos to the Ontario government uh, for recognizing that and for uh, passing the legislation so that's as of today they're back uh, and working serving uh, customers in the province uh, from the Globe Mail, uh, restaurants close. Uh, demand for grocery surges. Food distributors shift their focus. So I've been talking about and uh, interview talking about there's lots of food in this country, but it's not always in the right format. So there's lots of things going on, uh, even with the CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, relaxing labeling requirements. You know, still food is very safe. It's just not configured the right way for consumers. So everyone is pulling together to make sure all that food gets onto the shelves. And certainly at a minimum doesn't, uh, we don't include waste at this at this time, uh, but optimally just, uh, you know, both the transportation, the trucks, the supply chains of the business to business, food service business uh, align up. And this, this is a great story uh, from uh, the Globe and Mail. Uh, oh, speaking of Ontario, uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, uh, in a fun video, do check it out, designates the Easter Bunny's work as essential service. Uh, in this province. So uh, congratulations to the Ontario government for recognizing the important role that the Easter Bunny plays this weekend and declaring uh, declaring it, uh, him or her, hmm, uh, a uh, an essential service. Uh, so congratulations on that. Uh, let's see, from uh, an international perspective, you know, listen, there's not a lot of good news. Um, Neiman Marcus may seek bankruptcy protection. We've talked about Neiman Marcus before. It's a beautiful store at uh, Hudson Yards, but they they have been up against a tremendous amount of debt, and now this might be one of those things that pushes them over. Uh, Nordstrom as well, warning financial situation could become distressed. I think that's code for uh, we could be in big, big trouble. Uh, that from CNBC, uh, the other one from CBC. <clears throat> you know, we've been talking about China a lot in this episode. China live stream sales, how brands continue to reach customers. So lots of, uh, you know, listen, there is lots of uh, lessons to be learned. According to Taobao, there were 400 million users watching 60,000 plus live stream shopping shows, um, and and they're hosted by influencers generating 200 billion won, 28 billion of sales. So just pay, you know, something important to pay attention to. What's uh, what's been happening there? As I said, as I described in my interview with Carl, you know, it's a great leap forward in in many of these things. And I think uh, you know when we're, we come out the the other end of this COVID crisis, uh, there'll be some lessons learned and, and some patterns changed. Uh, in terms of how uh, consumers shop. Some things remain the same. I, I believe stores will be back. Uh, people uh, pent up demand to just shop and shop in a normal environment. And, um, you know, we're a ways away from it, but uh, there's all kinds of different things that are going to happen. And some things will stay the same. And, and th- some things will just be advanced five years, basically, from where they were, uh, where we began. Uh, it just seems like a long time ago, but it was only six weeks ago. Um, speaking of uh, changes, looks like Amazon's going to push out Prime Day, uh, at least until August, I think uh, Amazon is struggling uh, as as many um, from a logistics perspective just get product out the door. I know uh, my Amazon orders are not not all next day. I think they're prioritizing uh, the right things, uh, but it is a massive undertaking. A lot of people turned uh, to Amazon, so I think it's the right uh, probably the right idea. Move it out from July until uh, at least August, but that does raise the question as it starts to approach. Uh, the fall and it starts to kind of bunk up against bump up against um, a Black Friday. That'll be interesting. Uh, what else? Uh, let's see from uh, from an indie perspective. Uh, the great article here on on uh, some folks who've been on from Poppy Barley actually. Uh, Justine Barbary's been on my uh, podcast before uh, from the great uh, shoe company, footwear company out in out in the West in Calgary. Um, 
and you know the sales just fell off a cliff. So it's it's a study in survival. This is from the Financial Post, so it's a good read. Uh, their sales plunged ninety percent, nine nine zero uh, percent. So they just talk about how they're going to rebound. Uh, and as uh, Frank Lavin said in my last episode, bad weather, you got to move. Uh, weather's bad, so uh, they're putting plans together. And of course, we wish them nothing but uh, all the best luck. Um, what else? Uh, other businesses, uh, you know, something kind of saying the obvious here. Um, this from Alberta, uh, University of Alberta, the um, Kyle Murray, who uh, looks at their, who is their um, University of Alberta retail expert, talking about some will do better than others. There's a big role for government to step in. I guess that is self evident. Uh, in the strategy section, um, the, the Stats Canada released a flash uh, pulse. Uh, this week, actually, quietly on the 8th, I came across it, uh, and it's really interesting. They do some statistics about uh, product demand. Nothing really surprising. I mean, I guess it is kind of surprising to see a 630-plus percent increase in hand sanitizer, just to put a number to it. Um, but lots of other increases, that uh, primarily in the food industry. Um, so, you know, check that out. Uh, what else? We've got uh, from the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, pandemic is refining the food industry. I think I think you know, so many things that we're going to be learning uh, now and in the future about how people are buying uh, and how differently they're going to buy. Uh, lockdown, a couple of articles here about lockdown lifted in Wuhan. So this is, uh, what, 76 days that they were locked down. Locked down pretty hard. Uh, and as Carl said, um, you know, these... these um, you know, these green codes that are, are the codes on their phone generated by Alibaba and Tencent uh, based on travel history, basic information, close contacts. So this is so interesting. Just visiting a shopping mall where a virus case is later confirmed could turn the code yellow. You know, it's so fascinating and, and really fundamental to understand how they're coming out of it in 76 days, not 90 days. And 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 as Carl said, you know, this is not exactly a crystal ball. We're just not set up the same way, though. Uh, I imagine we'll get closer uh, than we'd like to having to do that. Um, and then there's a couple of other articles. Oh, this is from New York Times. Uh, China ends the lockdown with normal life is a distant dream. So, again, saying that just because it's been 76 days, uh, you know, they're not going from complete lockdown to complete freedom. Uh, so something to keep our collective eyes on uh, as we all kind of start to think about the future uh, as COVID or uh, whatever post-COVID retail looks like. Uh, I was on a, a live webinar. I was um, working with Enterprise Ireland this week, great clients at Enterprise Ireland, and uh, hosted a webinar, put on a webinar about uh, the state of retail in North America. And one of the follow-up questions from the audience was, uh, you know, when do I think this is all going to end from an economic perspective? How long could it last? I said, well, I, I'm not an econo- economist. I play one on an Enterprise Ireland <laughs> webinar. And I said, it's, you know, the, the key driver is whenever there is, that's um, whenever there's not a cure, but whenever there's a, a vaccine. Um, because it's hard to imagine uh, life uh, as we knew it before, uh, getting together and, for example, 100, with 100,000 people to watch a Notre Dame football game, uh, without a vaccine and that could be you know let's say you know the sharpest minds in the world are working hard on this that could be let's say they have a vaccine uh, January 1 2021 approved safe you don't want to cause more harm than good then you got to make 8 billion units of it or at least 4 billion units of it to inoculate half the planet if not the entire planet so you know we're in this for a while um, whatever that means I don't think it's always going to look like this but it's it, you know it'll be business as unusual as I've been saying for uh, for quite a while Well, that's a wrap on this edition of The Voice of Retail. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes, your favorite podcast platform. Please rate and review. Be sure to recommend to a friend or a colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of M.E. LeBlanc Company, Inc. You can learn more about me on www.meleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a safe week.